fiction, science fiction, horror, fantasy, crime, LGBT, thriller. You have now entered the house of mystery with your hosts, Eric Shapiro, David North Martino. John Copenhaver and Al Warren. What is this? 105 FM Los Angeles. 102.3 FM Riverside. And 105.0 AM Palm Springs. Welcome back into the House of Mystery. I'm Al Warren. Miss Jennifer and Gordon is here. Boo. All right. Now joining us today is author Gordon. Graceman, and his new book is called The Devil's Daughter. So thank you for being here, Gordon. Well, thank you, Alan, and thank you, Jennifer. Did anybody even watch the Super Bowl or follow it? I did. I, I, I did. I did not watch it, but I did periodically check on the Taylor Swift of it all. <laughs> no, I don't. I'm not even a Swifty. I'm not anti Taylor Swift, but um, I was curious what she was wearing. And then I, I, I like how angry it makes some people. <laughs> Yeah. Her, her very existence. <laughs> you know, I played football, and I even played in college some, so, you know, I'm interested in the game. But, you know, I'm a big supporter of the two of them. I thought they're, you know, sort of fabulous. They have good politics, so, uh, yeah. yeah. And, you know, and they were really sweet. It was, you know, there was something, I did watch, like, a few clips, because they're all yeah. over the Internet, of, like, just some hugging after the game, and I just thought it was very wholesome. Well, you know, my favorite part of that was, I don't know if you were watching the broadcast, you know, they have the panel of experts. It's like, you know, Murray <laughs> uh, Eisen and, you know, Bill Cower, various kind of football types anyway. And and the one, one guy in the panel, of course, the one I, whose name I don't know, when they were showing that clip, as opposed to, like, analyzing the football game, suddenly burst into what you're seeing is true love. And that is a, a a woman who stands behind her man. And I thought, yeah, that's exactly right, because who really cared, you know, whether or not they uh, threw a screen pass or ran a, you know, <laughs> a counter. We'd all much rather see uh, Kelsey and uh, Taylor, frankly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and this is coming from a football fan, ladies yeah. and gentlemen. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, no, it's absolutely, I mean, the game was over. You know, the Chiefs won. <laughs> I was rooting for them. You know, I actually mostly because I like Patrick Mahomes. But, uh, yeah, I mean, the game was over. We don't, we didn't really have to analyze it. We all saw it, you know. We were waiting for Taylor to come down from the box. <laughs> I didn't even watch it. I'm, I'm a ball humbug, I guess. I was, uh, I was writing. Some of us are doing work here. Oh, Alan, way to throw the rest of us under the bus. <laughs> Yeah, really? Oh, yeah. Well, I guess I should have been, well, instead tough, of just, like, yeah. watching Taylor Swift Twitter all night, <laughs> done something productive. You could have said that you watch for the commercials, which is kind of like saying you read Playboy for the articles, but nonetheless. Well, you know, and even that, I heard nothing but complaints, right? And and uh, I see, you see a lot of people complaining, saying that the world's gone so woke that even the commercials aren't fun anymore, right? So... Um, you can't win. I I just didn't see the positive. Oh no! You know I don't. So you just instead boycotted. My favorite thing is the idea that Taylor is a plant. You know from the Pentagon. Well, yeah. You know I love that theory. I you know I heard from 
people who I may or may not agree with, I don't, uh, that they were really scared that Taylor was going to, like, burst onto the the field after the game and, like, tell everybody in the world who to vote for and that our entire well, she's going to do that eventually. But I mean, she's going to do it eventually, but she's not going <laughs> to no. take her boyfriend's spotlight. No, look, the thing about that woman is she's kind of a genius. I mean, she's an incredible performer, but she has handled her image fabulously. You yes. know, the idea that she is just some sort of, you know, cutie singer is to underestimate her gigantically, I think. You know, she's no, I the agree. biggest singer in the world. You know. no, she's arguably the most powerful person on the planet right now. Well, maybe. Well, you know, more power Better her than Donald Trump. Is well, but, but, but I heard he wrote on uh, X or whatever, excrement or truth social, one of those, that he, uh, if it wasn't for him, she would be nothing. Oh, yeah, he did say that. But he says that about, you know, Jesus Christ. So, you know, it doesn't really. What, that's the definition of malignant narcissism, right? There. Yeah. Well, that's strange. But, but truth is power. <laughs> yeah, I hear it all. I hear it all, you know. And, and so, but that brings us into you and your career. Like, you've got quite the career with, uh, you know, the drug wars, the miniseries, and now you've written a book. When you do work like that, even like when you wrote, uh, you know, your new book, The Devil's Daughter is what it's called. Are you writing with the audience in your conscience? Are you are you thinking about them? You know, i got to tell you, I think well, the quick answer to that is no. Right? And I think, and I have in my career, particularly as a screenwriter, you know, in which you're not the primary artist, but I always think that is a massive mistake, you know. I mean, you got to write what you care about, and you've got to assume that, if you do it well and you understand the universality of writing, generally speaking, you know, the audience will appear. I, it's just my experience that the attempt to kind of curate what you're writing or homogenize it so it appeals to the widest possible audience is pretty much uh, a guarantee for either failure or really trite work. So, you know, the answer is no, particularly not in the book. I like hearing that. I, like I don't know whether that, that, I don't know whether that offends people or not, but, you know, that's the way I feel. Yeah. Well, no, and I understand that, right, because it gets in the way. But there's also the point of uh, not so much writing for them, but writing as if someone's, uh, you know, your audience is over your sh- sh- shoulder looking. Like are they, you know, like when you write something in a sense of are you, are you trying to be um, – I don't want to say politically correct, but are you trying to be so that it's something that they would agree with? No. I mean, I, I don't even think about that, to be honest with you. I, I, when I sit down to write, whether it's, it, I should say, lay down to write, because I, you know, the very last thing I do is kind of go to my uh, laptop and write. But the, um, what I try to do is, I used to call it, run the movie in my head. And I, I did that with a novel, too. And basically what I'm involved in is trying to visualize what the story is in a sort of meta sense, but also what its details are as I go along, right? So that I don't even think about the audience, you know, at all. I I suppose when I'm done, I do, you know, and there are certain times where you go, well, you know, people are going to hate that, so I think I'll change it, right? But in, in terms of the process itself, I really don't take the audience into account. I mean, maybe I should, but I don't, because I don't know who they are. Yeah, and I think it's it's important, especially at our earliest stages of creative work, of the, like the first vomit draft of a book, that you don't think about them, because then you're already censoring yourself. 
Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I think, and, 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 you know, my experience in Hollywood where you have, you know, where all creative decisions are sort of made by committee ultimately, and the only shot you've got at uh, your own kind of voice is the very first draft of what you're doing. What you find is, is you get hemmed in by whatever the conventional wisdom is dictating in the moment. And you got to remember, the conventional wisdom changes like instantaneously, right? I mean, all you have to do is think about the most popular movies of the summer, you know, uh, Barbie or, or Oppenheimer. I mean, you know, the conventional wisdom would have told those filmmakers not to make those movies because the audience wouldn't go and see them, and they both grossed over a billion dollars worldwide. So you can't anticipate the audience, you know. If you do good work and it is, you know, compelling and intriguing and all those good things, the audience will find it, hopefully. But to try to design it so that the audience will appreciate it, I think it is a prescription for failure much more often than it is a prescription for success. And I think just even creatively, it would kind of be a failure, like emotionally, creatively, because, I mean, as you said, kind of before we went live, you always wanted to write a book. So to spend all this time wanting to write a book and then end up writing not the book of your heart, um, that would be... That would be terrible for you as a writer. And a perfect example of that is my agent, bless his heart, you know, when he when I finished the book and we'd sold it, and, he, and we were talking about a Hollywood sale, and there hasn't been one. I don't know if there ever will be, but, you know, we haven't taken the book out yet. But the point is, is that he said to me, well, I assume you, if it were a limited series, you want to write the pilot. And I said, not on your life, because the last thing I want to do is take a book I've written on my own and listen to a whole bunch of people tell me how to adapt it for just the reason you said. You know, let somebody else deal with that. You know, sort of send me the check. Is my so, Gordon, is this the book of your heart, The Devil's Daughter? This is your first novel. How long has this story been living inside of you, just, like, waiting to come out? Well, I, you know, it's not the story. It's the setting. I mean, New York in the 50s, that was my father's New York. And I was a very, very little boy. And it, uh, my grandparents lived in Manhattan. And uh, my grandfather was kind of a raconteur kind of guy. And he would take me and my brothers to these great places like Tut Shores. I must have been seven years old, right? And it made an enormous impression on me. And then there was a man um, named Richard Coffey, and he's actually in the acknowledgments, who was a friend of mine's dad. And he was the promotional director of Time Magazine at the height of Time Magazine's kind of influence. And he had offices uh, in the Time Life building on 6th Avenue in Midtown in Manhattan. Uh, you know, when I was like 14, I would, we would, my friend Dennis and I would get all dressed up, you know, put on our blue blazers and our khaki pants and, and go to Manhattan. And he would take us to, um, you know, to like Minucci's and 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 these really cool play, you know, tw uh, twenty one. These really cool places in Midtown, and that New York, which I think basically doesn't exist any longer, was just magical to me. And I wanted to write a story that took place there. Um, and that was sort of the germ of this idea, more than the story itself was. Did you know it would be a detective story? Well, I like that. I love that genre. You know, I mean, it was an easy genre to marry. 
Um, I've always been a big fan of everybody from Dashiell Hammett to Ross McDonald, you know, to James Elroy, to all those guys. And I love that kind of fiction. It's sort of muscular. You know, and the weird thing is, in this day and age, you have to find a setting for that kind of muscular writing so that it doesn't run afoul of PC, if you know what I mean. By setting it in period, even though I was very well aware of the pitfalls in that, um, it, it absolved me of certain kinds of modernity, too. You know, like it could be as simple as there were, you know, there was very little technology involved, right? But more importantly, I could deal with issues that were contemporary in this case, in this case of this book, things like sexual abuse in a context in which people got away with it, to be honest with you, right? There was, a, you know, it predated Me Too by decades, and and uh, powerful people pretty much did whatever they pleased. And uh, I wanted to write a story about a guy when confronted with that, something that offends me in the modern world dramatically, you know, does something about it. And it also, it fits a, a paradigm that, a writing paradigm or that I've always, like, really embraced, which is the moral man in the immoral universe. Watch him react in that. So, yeah, detective fiction was a contextual idea, if that makes any sense. Um, but there were thematic ideas I wanted to get into, but I needed the right context, and that kind of detective fiction really made the context for me. It's quite a bit different writing a book as compared to a screenplay, too, right? There's a, there's a totally different... Oh, yeah. Yeah, and and you have to be a lot more descriptive, I would imagine, in the book. Well, you know what the real difference is, is there's no reflective mode in screenwriting. You can't write what the characters are thinking, right? You have to you write what they're doing, right, not what they're thinking. It it really is up to the actor in, some, in subtext to show you what the character is thinking, and often you don't know. The tremendous pleasure in writing a book was to be able to tell or write about what the main character was thinking. And so that was really great. And it was, there were similarities, too, for me, you know, which was the, the visual nature of screenwriting and, and the visual nature of the novel. But the, I said this before, you know, i got to remember in screenwriting, unless you're a writer-director, you're not the primary artist. You know, the director is the primary artist, particularly in movies I'm talking now. It's entire, you know, it's a visual medium, obviously. So a literary approach to screenwriting is usually not the best approach. You know, you, you really have to, if you think about sort of the great screenwriters historically, Waldo Salt or some of the guys like that, you know, if you ever read their screenplays, they are they are propulsive. You know, I worked with Michael Mann, uh, you know, and it was kind of the most interesting guy I worked with in Hollywood, and he, we were doing a television project together, but he was prepping the last of the Mohicans, and at one point he gave me the script for the, you know, let's say a year before it was shot, I think. And uh, the action sequences in that script were unbelievably good as writing, but it wasn't, you didn't know what Natty Bumpo was thinking, you know what I mean? You know, you saw them going down the rapids and, you know, fighting the British, and it was incredibly exciting, uh, but it's a different kind of writing right yeah and i guess that would be hard like with your devil's daughter novel i guess to get uh get the cash and have have a, a movie house do this um some hollywood producer kind of do this because then you're going to rely on actors to kind of make the characters come to life well that could be yes and, that, and depending on who the actors are that can be a 
good thing or bad thing. I always tell the story. I did this, uh, wrote and produced of this mini series called The Bronx is Burning, which we did for ESPN. And it starred John Turturro and Oliver Platt. And um, I'm not much of a comedy writer. In fact, I would say I'm not a comedy writer at all. And I was, it took, I was going to write a joke for, for Ollie Platt in the script. And, uh, cause I was writing on the set, um, for a whole host of reasons that are too boring to go into. And I must have spent three hours writing this one joke in dialogue, trying to get the words exactly right. And, and I worked on it until I started, could, could laugh at it a little bit. And, and I finally got it, right? So a few days later, they go to shoot, they go to shoot it. And um, I want to go to the set to see my joke done, right? And Oliver gets up there, and he completely transposes the words in my joke. And it was a ton funnier coming out of his mouth. He's a really good actor can make your work sing. And Ollie came up to me afterwards and said, everyone calls me Gordo, right? And they said, Gordo, what, was that all right? And I said, Ollie, you're making me look good. So in the hands of a really good actor, they can make your work really, really sing. And conversely, in the hands of a really bad actor, they can make really good work seem terrible. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So listen, why the 1950s? That's where the set, the time of, of this story is at. Um, is there something about that time period? Yeah. I mean, I, there was something about, first of all, stylistically, it really attracts me, you know, from a visual sense, right? I mean, for example, V, the, the female lead, is, is um, sort of uh, predicated on Susie Parker, who was this really famous model in the 50s. And she she was... You know, they apply the term supermodel, but at the time, that term didn't really exist. She was just a very beautiful woman who was a model, right? She wasn't sort of, she didn't become famous, but she tried to become an actress, really. Do you think she'd be good enough for this role? Would she be an actress that would no, no. here with? <laughs> <laughs> no, she wasn't a very good actress. She was a really great model. I mean, you know. But, but New York at that time was an amazingly stylistically interesting place, right? It was... You know, if you've seen Maestro, it's sort of the, the early part of Maestro. It was when Broadway was really flourishing and Midtown Manhattan was like a magical place, but it was affordable. So a guy like Jack Coffey, my lead, could grow up in Hell's Kitchen, which isn't there anymore mostly because they built, built Lincoln Center in the 60s and tore most of it down. But there were there were working-class neighborhoods in Manhattan, so Manhattan was a much more eclectic kind of place. And, and a place like Greenwich Village, where Jack lives, in the 50s was, was a place where uh, there were homosexuals, which, you know, was... A, oh, my God. I'm shocked. Exactly. And there <laughs> no. were a lot of beatniks and folk singers. It was just a really interesting time in the city. Um, and it was a time where people didn't think about things like crime very much because, you know, the, it was before Miranda, so the cops would regularly tune up suspects, which is to say they'd beat the crap out of them until they confessed, which was not a good thing, but it was a different world, and that world attracted me, I thought, because the... Um, the morality of it was very stark, I guess is what I'm saying. There was there were very few gray areas in it. So do you have a 1950s-era movie cast in mind? Like, do you visualize actors? You come from a Hollywood background. Do you visualize actors when you're writing a novel? Well, 
I don't visualize actors, you know, in terms of like naming the actors, right? Like for, for example, I was having this conversation at dinner just a couple of nights ago, and and you know, I said somebody said to me, if you could cast Jack now, who would you cast? And I said, well, uh, Jeremy Allen White, right? Because he has that the that kind of, you know, soulfulness. And, you know, I don't know if he's Irish or not, probably not. But, um, you know, you, you're sort of, but I didn't think of him beforehand. I sort of thought, thought of him when I was done. You got to remember that when you're writing, even when you're writing for the screen, but much, you know, much more acutely when you're writing a book, there's a certain way you're just projecting the idealized version of yourself, right? It's like Jack Coffee is a guy who I would like to be, right? And I, <laughs> And I have, you know, and hopefully I have some of his qualities as a human being. Um, but the, the, part of the real fun of writing is creating a character life. Although my wife, you know, joked, she said, yeah, you created Jack Coffee as an extension of yourself and then proceeded to give her the, a girlfriend who was the most beautiful woman on this earth. This is why we write. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Something revealed in that, probably. Um, but, you know, the the... The Hollywood stuff is much more amorphous and complicated than you would think. It's not the kind of straightforward thing where when you're working and written a screenplay or a teleplay that's going into production, right? It's not like you get to cast it. Uh, the process is such like well, I did a TV series one, one time at Fox, right, the, to give you an example. And the process was I auditioned maybe 40, 50 actors of various parts in that. Then I had to take the actors, that like my choices, maybe 10 actors, right? And I had to trot them over to the studio. And so the head of the studio would then watch their auditions, and they would knock out people that I liked, right? And then when they – so now the number would be down to like five – and then you'd have to trot them into the network, right? And the network would go, no, I don't like that guy. So I, I once cast a pilot where I brought uh, Matt LeBlanc in before Friends, right? And, and the network said to me, I don't like him. He looks like a thug. And that was the end of that. So it doesn't have that kind of, yeah, I wrote the thing and they're going to shoot it, and now I'm going to cast who I want it. That doesn't work that way. Do you actually live through your characters then? Do you feel them, hear them, all that? Yeah, that I really do. That I really, really do. And 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 a perfect example is the sort of end of The Devil's Daughter. Because, you know, the, the way these detective novels kind of sort of historically end is on a cynical note, right? But I'm not really a cynical guy. And I wanted I wanted the end to be bittersweet, to have some kind of reality to it because uh, in life, you know, you fall in love and then you fall out of love. And then that that great love becomes a memory and then maybe you encounter her or him again and and all sorts of feelings get dredged up. And it's not as simple as, you know, uh, life sucks and then you die or, you know, you all ride off in the sunset together. So I was looking, in that in this case, to make an ending that really felt like life. I don't know if I succeeded. I hope I did. Did you ever think when you were writing uh, the book that this was going to become a series, that these characters were going to be people that you could bring forward into other books? Well, that, I'm writing a, a, a prequel to the book now, so, so the second part of that is absolutely true. But, you know, one of the things I learned in Hollywood in a strange way was that if you start 
if you have too much Hollywood in mind when you're writing fiction, you just go wrong. Because, again, you're taking in a sort of exteriorized notion of what the story should be, right? As opposed to one that comes from an interior place. And you're trying to, like, marry the two things together in such a way where you think, well, you know what, I could sell this to Hollywood. You know, you got to remember that, that for most writers of fiction, it works in the reverse of the way it worked for me. I was a screenwriter for a long time, and then I wrote a book. You know, a lot of novelists, because it's really hard to make a living as a novelist, right, are, you know, hope their books will go to Hollywood because the paydays in Hollywood are really pretty big, right? Um, but I, you know... I had my uh, salad days in Hollywood that paid really well. So, that so now wasn't... you can be an artiste. <laughs> yeah, sort of. <laughs> yeah sort of. The rest of us out here are just slinging words. Well, it's not that. A... You, know, you understand what I mean. No, it I was do. Like... And then the thing was, was that I came up uh, on movies from the 70s, right? And, you know, it was a great era, a golden era of filmmaking, right? So being a novelist, people wanted to be screenwriters, really. Because that seemed like a really interesting art form. And it doesn't seem like an art form any longer, really, when you stop and think about it. Um, you know, given the Marvel movies and all. I mean, there's still plenty of art form movies that are around, but... So what made you step away from Hollywood and screenwriting? I've been to the rodeo, Jennifer. <laughs> so, <laughs> I see you saddled up to a bar in a 1950s setting. Fedora... <laughs> Cigarette. Well, no, I mean, here's the thing. I, when I did The Bronx's Burning, I got nominated for a Producers Guild Award. It was very well received. I got offered a lot of work. You know, it was a real success. And I was working, and I was making some dough, and uh, I was having the usual Hollywood battles, and I suddenly went, I don't really have to do this anymore. My kids were grown. You know, I didn't have the same kinds of responsibilities. I could... Money in the bank. I could take some chances and write a book, and it was really more like that. There was nothing left. Let me do this way: the very first project I sold to Hollywood, I was 27, and I pitched a, a movie idea to a producer at Warner Brothers about the Spanish Civil War, if you can imagine, right? Um, people don't even know what that is anymore. <laughs> but anyway, about an American in the Spanish Civil War, and they bought it. And they didn't pay me a lot of money. I think they paid like $30,000. And I'm walking across the lot at Warner Brothers, and I literally was so happy I leapt into the air, right? Oh, my gosh. Full-blown sound of music moment? Well, yeah, but nobody ever felt quite as good as that again, you know? I mean, it was good. Um, and I went, you know, Michael and I got nominated for an Emmy for the drug wars, and, and that was good. I mean, I don't want to, you know, sound cynical or jaded or something. It was good. I, it, it was good, but it, it wasn't as thrilling as selling my novel was, to be honest with you, you know, at some point. You know, and the thing about it, too, is, is I work in a company town or worked for years, and I still live in a company town. I mean, Sally Field was my sister-in-law for 10 years. You know, you, you get to sort of know them all, and that's not necessarily, uh, I don't mean this about Sally, but it's not necessarily <laughs> a good thing. But a, a glass, glass of it kind of wears away because you meet them and you, not so much you hang out with them. It's just, 
you know, I spent Thanksgiving with Ben Affleck one year, you know, as a friend of mine's house. And, you know, he was there, he was just a guy, he was an interesting guy. But, you know, all of that Hollywood sheen kind of goes away because you're working around. I, I understand that in a very, you know, minor level. I was a theater actress for a really long time. It, you know, like, and I got so used to being backstage and, like, being in shows and afterwards, I would go see plays, and people are like, oh, do you miss it? And I'm like, not at all. <laughs> not one little bit. Um, I, You know, and I feel like as a writer, I'm acting. It's like I'm developing characters. And it's not like I didn't like doing it. I mean, don't get me wrong. But, you know, there's a way when you're outside of Hollywood, it really, really looks glamorous. And it isn't really. In the, in the first few years I was in Hollywood, I, when you'd get invited to, like, the premiere of a movie, right? Whatever. You know, you knew somebody worked on the movie. <laughs> I mean, basically, that's the way that worked, right? Uh, like, my friend Patty Resnick uh, wrote Nine to Five. You remember that movie? You know, Jane Fonda and Dolly Parton. And, you know, through Pat, I got invited to the big Hollywood premiere. And that might have been the first one I ever went to, right? And that was pretty thrilling. You know, I had the red carpet and, you know, it was Hollywood Boulevard. It was, you know, that whole kind of nine yards of that stuff. But, you know, if you go to three or four of them after a while, you kind of go, well, okay, you know, they're, they're all kind of the same. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, it doesn't. It's a reason to wear a tuxedo. Well, yeah, you know. This is when I got nominated for an Emmy. I went, I, I went in uh, I bought a tuxedo. And the way that worked was gave you seats so that if you won, right, you didn't have to, like, make your way through a million people to get to the stage, right? So all the nominees kind of sat on the aisles and all this kind of stuff. And uh, it was for uh, the best miniseries that year. And uh, I'm sitting on the aisle, and, it's like, the mini, you know, the, the ceremony takes, like, three hours, and it's <laughs> And it's really, after a while, it's really kind of, you know, it breaks for commercials, and it really gets kind of dull. And and the miniseries award didn't get awarded until the last half hour, I think. And so I was kind of like, you know, a little bit out of it from sitting in the same seat for so long. And uh, our category got nominated, and suddenly this guy comes, you know, a cameraman comes, as they do when they show your faces, right, comes and sticks this camera in my face because he's going to get my reaction if I win. <laughs> and I know enough about this to know that the little red light above the lens is the key to the whole thing. If that goes on, I won. And I'm sitting there, and you know what my thought was? Please don't go on, <laughs> please. Because I was so not ready to get up in the hall for old people and say something. I had prepared nothing. And it didn't go on, so, you know, there was poetic justice. That's when you're supposed to freak out and act really <laughs> angry because you lost. No, no, I didn't really feel that way. The party <laughs> was pretty good, though. I mean, you know. Yeah, those are the best parts. Yeah. You know. Yeah, no, yeah. It's true, really true. That's the, one, that's the part that sticks with you. Yeah. When you're writing a gritty 1950s detective story, how is it that you keep it so that it fits in today's world? Well, it, that's a really interesting question, and it's kind of complicated. I mean, what I tried to do was to say that there are, are modern issues, in this case, uh, child abuse and sexual abuse, and they're very much in the contemporary consciousness. And by making Lucy, you know, the sort of titular devil's daughter, 16, you know, she was both ripe for exploitation and the belief that somehow she was the exploiter. Um, so it became morally complicated. But anyway, the issue 
had real modern ramifications. And as I said to you before, the difference was really dramatic because there was not some huge support system for people who were suffering from that, particularly wealthy people who could sort of buy their way out of anything. So to me, uh, the marriage of a contemporary issue in an era where the reader will go, wow, is this really true? Could people really get away with this like that? Um, because it is true, and it's pretty shocking. And I think, I was about to say, I don't think anybody's doing that. Maybe they are, I don't know. But it was appealing to me. Well, I just I just wonder in the sense of, um, you know, you doing the dialogue, the, the audio between the characters and stuff, they're not going to be as... Um, polite, let's say, or, or sensitive back then as they would be today. So do you avoid that situation with your characters? Well, you know, what you try to do is you try to find a space where that works for you, because you're absolutely right. So, I mean, one of the advantages of writing detective fiction is there's a sort of detective patois, if you know what I mean. Uh, you can use that. What do you, you know, the things you don't do anymore, you know, you don't call a woman a dame or something or a skirt or whatever. Um, and you're sort of careful about that. Um, but it doesn't, I don't think it impedes your, your ability to write dialogue. You know, dialogue is a function of your ear and not a function of your intellect, right? So if you, you know, it's not like I monitor my words, but I know when I've written a piece of dialogue, say, in which there's some Thing really offensive in a modern context, I'll find some other way of expressing the thought so that it's not, uh, so it doesn't seem like I'm being politically correct, even though I am. I'm writing this thing right now where basically, without giving anything away, where basically uh, Jack, it's, it takes place in Hollywood in 1951, and um, Jack and a, and a journalist, a woman journalist, are trying to find this guy. And through a series of circumstances, they realize that the way he's hiding in plain sight, because he's gay, um, and of course closeted, because it's 1951, um, is that uh, he's hiding out in a in a drag club, right? That's a slippery slope. Yeah. <laughs> well, exactly right. So the question really becomes. The question becomes really simple. What pronoun are you going to use? In other words, in the in contemporary context, you'll go, my pro pronouns are him and her or she and, you know, whatever they are, right? But now, I mean, a time when there were, you know, I did the research, there were plenty of drag clubs. There was like in New York, there was a very popular drag review called the Jewel Box Review that, you know, people went and saw. But I am calling all of the people who are cross-dressing, and I don't think that's even an appropriate word. Yeah, I was going to say, no, that's a, that's a word. <laughs> yeah, no, I don't, I don't use that. No, I know, but I was like, this is why it's a slippery slope. Yeah, right, but I'm very careful to call everyone who's dressed, let's say, she, right? Um, and there was a very famous drag performer named Ray Bourbon who, you know, was very well known at the time. Um, and I'm saying that Jack knows her. Um, and I'm very careful about saying, okay, it is offensive to use a term like cross-dressing. It's also offensive to call these women he, he right? Because, and that's the way in which uh, contemporary sensibilities begin to 
impact what I'm writing. But to be honest with you, it's not much of a drawback, you know. So everybody gets called she. That's okay. Yeah, but you have to be careful about the mooding, right? Because people's behavior were a certain certain way. So I, I just I just wonder how how far you can kind of um, soften the blow, so to speak. Good choice of word. Well, I don't, you know, you know what, Alan? I'm not sure you have to soften it. You just have to come at it from a different angle. Look, there, it looks like there are only two ways of coming at it. Either you do it in a sort of atavistic kind of way, right, which is offends a million people, right, or you come at it in an in a excessively woke kind of way, which just doesn't make the story work, right? So you've got it. What, you, what I do with Jack, as I say, and this was showing the Devil's Daughter, because as you as you remember, there are several sequences uh, with uh, gay guys in that. What I just say is that Jack is a guy who, who believes in fair play, no matter who you are, right? So that if he sees, as he says, sees in the Devil's Daughter, you know, these kids harassing these two. Uh, gay guys walking down the street in the West Village and, you know, and, and punching one of them in the mouth, he's going to intervene. Now, what does that make him exactly? I mean, it it, it doesn't make him anything it's except who he is. Yeah. 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 yeah, I think that's, the, that's the, the key to it, is showing that there's still the, the world at that time was not necessarily a good place for a gay man, but your character is willing to... Um, give them a fair shake, no matter what. Well, it, it goes beyond that, because in, in the case of this character, he grew up in working-class New York, right? Which means he'd been exposed to all kinds of people in his young life, right? So he's not making judgments about, you know, uh, about who, like, those guys are sleeping with. I mean... The way it's described, and I did this very intentionally, is she's walking arm-in-arm arm with V, and they're walking arm-in-arm arm in the opposite direction, and they smile at each other. Why? Because they're clearly all in love, right? And that, and to me, that is the leveler. I mean, you don't really have to be tremendously woke in order to feel the leveler. Right, and it's not as if you you're know? coming at it for, through, like, a political opinion lens. It's just this is yeah. this is life, and and he's fine with yeah. You know, I kind of learned this from my dad. He was, you know, my dad was a, a World War II combat veteran. And, you know, having an experience like that when you're 20 tends to really change your view of the world. And he was very insistent that when we when he raised us that we never, ever, you know, visited a judgment on people who were different than we were. Um, it was a very big deal for him. And so is there a subtext then? Do you actually, uh, even if it happened organically, but is there some sort of meaning underneath the story or the entertainment of The Devil's Daughter? Well, I think, look, I mean, there, there are several th themes, and I think I just sort of hit on one of them, which is the, the moral man, the immoral universe. Look, you know, it's like we were talking about Donald Trump before. I mean, the point really is uh, that you... Uh, there's still kindness in the world. There's still bravery. All those qualities that we always admired, which seem to have fallen in some, into some level of disrepute, are still very much extant, and it's who we all want to be. And I wanted to write a story about a guy and a woman, in the case of V, by the way, right? And, a guy, and also, like, Bernie Rothstein, the cop, or, or Carmine Rizzo, the mob guy, right? There are... They, they 
live by certain kind of moral imperatives. And and they don't like cotton to people who, you know, find life morally ambiguous, you know. I mean that they or that they have permission because they're powerful or that they're wealthy or something like that to behave really badly, uh, in some cases criminally. And that's sort of the subtext here, I think. Does that make any sense? I'm not yeah, sure. Yeah, I think so. So it, it, the devil's daughter, who is that? Taylor Swift? <laughs> well, <laughs> it's, it's been Taylor Swift the whole time. Yeah. <laughs> the devil's daughter is Lucy, Lucy Garrett. But, you know, it's an interesting thing, too. And, and this harkens back to something. You know, I once did, it never got made, I once did this adaptation for Showtime of Madame Bovary, right? And this sounds like a non-sacrator, but I'll bring it around. Um, and at one point, they were going to do it, and uh, the instructor named Ash Agnieszka Holland who was going to direct it. And uh, we were talking about, you know, who to cast as, as Madame Bovary. And I said, the only way to explain that behavior in that book in a contemporary setting is to make Madame Bovary really young, right? Because when you're really young, you re- well, you know, you're like a teenager, you have really no idea of the extent of the consequences if you behave badly. And so in Lucy, I wanted to say that she behaves really badly, but she doesn't really understand what she's doing. So that in the end, I wanted to, even though she, again, I shouldn't say this probably, but she dies, I want to redeem her. But, uh, you know, throughout, throughout a lot of the book, she is the devil's dog. You know, living through your characters and writing a book like this and however long it took you to write it, how do you think this process has changed you? Well, start with it's very different from Hollywood. And it's changed me in the sense that it's made me extraordinarily happy, to be honest with you. And this is going to sound a little bit odd, but um, I've been married for a very long time, but I was married before. And uh, in the last few years, my wife and I have become friendly with my ex-wife, whose husband sadly passed away some years ago. And uh, so the, there was a book launch in New York a few weeks ago at the Mysterious Bookshop, and uh, I was texting. So my wife and I were going to go, and I was texting with my ex-wife, and I said, why don't you come with us? And she did. And I'm in New York reading from my novel, my debut novel, with the only two women I've ever loved. And it was like the apotheosis of my life. And that's the way I feel about having written this novel. Wow. That's amazing. I just felt like I was a really lucky guy, to tell you the truth. No men in there? No. Just... <laughs> Not that I remember. Well. <laughs> I'm just checking. I'm just checking for the guys here. Well, you know who knows. Who knows Hollywood. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's also in Hollywood. Is when I was a hippie, anything was possible. I think, but uh, yeah, not oh, Okay. Well, just checking for my guy friends here. You know, always looking out for my own. Well, you know, that Seinfeld line. Not that there's anything wrong with it. Yeah, I mean, there isn't anything wrong. Well, listen, so do you do social media or do you do website and all that stuff? Do you like? Well, I do. Yeah, I've got a website, gordongreisman.com, um, and please, everyone who's listening, go give it a visit. And, uh, you know, I do uh, threads and and Instagram. The only social media I'm really not on is TikTok, to be honest with you, um, and there's no reason for that. I just sort of haven't gotten around to it. 
but you know, one of the weird things about, about being a writer is how much publicity you have to do on your own. Not that the Blackstone guys aren't, you know, really good women, really aren't really good about it, but it's just the nature of the beast these days. Um, so yeah, I'm on, uh, I'm on threads and Instagram and, and, uh, X now and Facebook, of course. You know, my father was in the garment business, right? And he sold dresses and I'm out there selling now too. Same thing. Well, listen, I tell you what, we're going to put all that up our website along, along with your book and all that, but, uh, Oh, great. Thank you so much. We really need to see you on TikTok. I like to see you get up there dancing, you know, do some. You know. Oh, yeah. Well, not if you. I sort of dance like Elaine in Seinfeld. Oh, well, Jordan, I'm a dance instructor. I could do like oh, a Zoom, Zoom lesson for you. <laughs> yeah. Get you and, you and maybe your current wife and your ex wife to do um, kind of like a three person fun tango. You all dress up like the 50s. And then, like, well, I do, yeah, I do. I wish they would do it too. You know, I mean, my my wife, when she was very young, was a dancer, so I'm sure she could pull it off. But the, um, yeah, sounds good to me. Okay. All right. Yeah, we'll start that. (laughs) I can't wait for that. that, (laughs) Either, frankly. Yeah. Well, it's been a pleasure. Uh, Of course, your new book is called The Devil's Daughter. And the author is our guest, of course, Gordon Greisman. Thank you for being here. Well, thank you, Alan, and thank you, Jennifer. I really enjoyed it. Thank you, Gordon. It was great. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Yeah. Good night. This is the introduction of something weird media. I'll be back.